O most gracious God, once more draw near, enliven our hearts, enliven our minds. Help us to hear your word and guide us by your spirit. And through this time of worship, that we would be renewed in heart, mind, and soul, that our whole being would be drawn nearer unto you. We do ask all of this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The temptation of Jesus is a subject we take up every year, isn't it? It's one that we come to every single year during this first Sunday of Lent. For us and for many others who follow this church calendar, it is a great moment in this calendar. We remember that Jesus himself was directly tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness. So great was this man Jesus that Satan himself came to him and tried to lead him astray directly. But yet in our Old Testament, in our epistle readings for this day, we hear about something different. Our focus there is drawn to the promise of Yahweh in light of the flood and the promise of baptism for the believer. And we even hear it in the Gospel of Mark because where do we start? We start with the baptism of Jesus. I kind of feel like we've jumped back to the first Sunday of Epiphany. They're hearing about the baptism of Jesus, the words of the Father and the Spirit descending on Him. But we go further in our reading today to go into Mark's telling about Jesus' temptation. And Mark doesn't give us much detail about it. He just simply says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And He was there 40 days being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to Him. That is the extent to which St. Mark gives us about Jesus' temptation, but hearing about his baptism in connection with that, hearing about the promise of Yahweh there in the Old Testament of our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit speaking to Noah, and then hearing about St. Peter telling us about what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and how baptism now does something, how baptism acts upon us. These are all three chords that are drawn together. They go together. And our gospel helps us to see them fit together by our reading today. That in Mark's wisdom, he gave us very little about the temptation, letting the other gospel writers, St. Matthew and St. Luke, fill in the details. But because of his brevity, we get to hear about Jesus' baptism a second time, and that's where this gospel lesson brings it all together by laying his baptism right next to his temptation for us to read on this first Sunday in Lent. For us to see that they go together and that in the work of God and baptism lays the foundation for the resisting of temptation. The work of God in baptism lays the foundation for resisting temptation. And that all starts first in our readings with a recollection about the flood and about the promise through the rainbow. You see, back in the days of Noah, the world became so wretched and so full of evil that God destroyed it. He wiped out mankind and all the animals save eight people and an ark of animals. God started creation over in a way. The 
earth was so wicked and so lacking in faith that God started over, starting with the man Noah and his family, that Noah was found to be righteous before the Lord, for he trusted in God. He trusted in the teachings that had been passed down for generations in his family. He believed what the Lord had said and that the Lord had done, and he trusted in him and looked to him for forgiveness and found righteousness in the eyes of God. Such that when the time came for God to prepare the flood the earth, he called Noah forth with his family and had him build an ark. And building that ark, it took him years and years and years to build it. And so all the people around him saw that Noah was up to something. And in that time, Noah told them, the one true God is going to destroy this earth with water. Turn and repent. To summarize probably the things that he said to them. But no one did. No one listened. Everyone ignored him and they mocked him for doing what he did. But Noah persisted. And his sons and their wives persisted. And his wife, Noah's wife, persisted. And they built the ark. And the time came for the flood. And the animals came and they filled up the ark. And they sealed the door. And the floods came upon the earth and wiped it clean. You see, on one hand... The flood was the ultimate judgment against the earth. It wiped out all of mankind except for the chosen of God, those who had trusted in Him. But it was salvation for those who trusted in Him because He placed them in the ark. And as the waters came upon the earth, the ark was lifted up, into the wa- lifted up above the water and it floated upon the waters. And there, God's people were safe inside of the ark while the flood cleansed the world around them. And when it receded, there was a sense of new creation brought down. Noah and his family entered into a new creation, a world that had been cleansed of sin, though they were still sinners. And we quickly find out after this passage today that they were definitely still sinners. They both, Noah and his sons, still sinned. But here, after coming out of the ark, we hear the promise of God in the rainbow. That as the flood cleansed the earth and wiped sin from it, God promises never to destroy the earth with a flood like that. Never to use the waters of a flood to wipe out mankind, to wipe out the animals. Never again would He do that to deal with sin. You see, God doesn't just make this promise with Noah and his family, but to the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth. All of creation, God makes this covenant with. That He will never destroy creation again with the floods of the waters. With the waters of the flood. And what does God do? To prove His point, He hangs the rainbow in the sky, so to speak. He gives the rainbow as a sign of His covenant that He will never again do this. The rainbow, sitting there hanging in the sky whenever it rains. After the rain, we also often see a rainbow glittering across the sky. And of course, it's called a rainbow for a reason because it looks like a bow, does it not? Like a hunting bow that you would draw back and fire an arrow with. But as opposed to a hunting bow or a war bow pointing toward an enemy, it points upward. One writer of a children's story Bible points out that the rainbow is like that war bow in the sky. But it's aimed upward 
It's not aimed down at the enemies of God, at those who would rebel against Him, but against the one who is rebelled against. It points toward Him. He points His war bow toward Himself and lets it rest until the day that it is to be drawn. Not against the rebels, but against Him. That in that strike of the war bow, He would take upon Himself the rebels' very rebellion. And provide a way for them to return to Him. There is a beauty in that promise of God that He will not destroy creation with a flood. And He demonstrates that with His rainbow in the sky that points up toward Himself. So that we can know that He won't do that. But that bow points toward Himself because He is going to do something greater that will bring about a complete and new creation of all things. He will take upon Himself our very rebellion. And in taking upon Himself our rebellion, He will put it down. He will destroy that very rebellion and call forth out of the rebels a people for Himself. He will call forth new people who have been made new by His Spirit being poured upon them. Because He will let the bow be fired upon Himself. And die in our place. And that dying in our place we hear about in Second in First Peter today. Right there at the very get-go, we hear that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ substituted Himself for us on the cross. And there... That symbol of the war bow becomes a cross upon which God Himself and Jesus dies. For God Himself could not die except that He became incarnate as a human being. He became one of us and walked this earth and brought about healings and good deeds that no one had ever seen before. And all of that led Him toward the cross. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, that is, his physical body died, but being made alive in the Spirit or by the Spirit. He was brought back to life, body and soul. And then St. Peter enters into a mysterious saying here that has been debated throughout the church ages. What is he talking about when he says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey God? when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Commentators throughout the age of the church have debated what, Paul, what Peter is talking about here. Who are these prisoners? What does he mean by those who did not obey during the days of Noah? Where did Jesus go? Where is He going? And what does it mean in which He went? Does it mean... Just his soul went down to this place of Hades to proclaim his victory? Or is it his entire resurrected being went down into Hades before he appeared out of the tomb? I'm not sure which way to go with that. But I do believe that Jesus mysteriously in some way in his death, as he was dead in the grave, that in his resurrection somehow mysteriously he did proclaim his victory to the prisoners, to those in Hades, to those who had rejected in the past to those who had tried to destroy the seed of God amongst men, to those who tried to wipe out and draw 
all men away from God in order that God's promise could not be fulfilled. The promise given to Eve that one of her seed would crush the head of the serpent. And that is what Satan was doing in the days of Noah, attempting to destroy mankind through their wickedness, to draw all men and all women and all people away from God. But God, but God succeeded against Satan by saving Noah and his family. And all of those went down into prison, and all who have tried to resist God have been put into prison in their deaths. And Christ mysteriously proclaims to them His death and His resurrection that God has won the day against Satan and against His ways of trying to destroy God's promise. God has fulfilled His promise And thus, Jesus rises from the dead truly and completely and appears before his followers. For we know that his body, his new, his not new body, his redeemed, his glorified body, excuse me, his glorified body can do more than an ordinary body now. He can appear and disappear at will. And so, in one hand, it makes sense that somehow mysteriously he may have physically in this glorified spiritual kind of body descended into those lower depths of the earth to proclaim His physical resurrection. We don't quite understand and there is much debate, but Peter draws our eyes to something else as he is discussing what Christ has suffered, that the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring those unrighteous to God in Christ. He brings up the flood. He points out that the flood wiped out the evil on the earth. And that those eight persons were brought to safety through water. And he turns his eyes from that very flood water to baptism itself and says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism corresponds to the flood. The flood is a type of salvation and baptism is the antitype. The flood is the sign and baptism is the fulfillment. The flood wiped the earth clean of sin while at the same time preserving eight souls to live upon that new creation. And baptism now saves you not because it gets rid of dirt from your body as an outsider might see and think as they see water being poured on someone, They're just removing dirt, they might think. No, it is not that. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an appeal, but also a pledge from God. Both thoughts are within this verse of it being an appeal and pledge to God for a good conscience. That God in baptism is saving you by pledging to you new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not separated from Jesus. Baptism is bound up with who Jesus is. Pouring water on someone would have no effect save for the resurrection of Jesus and calling out for Him to act in that water, to act by that water on this person, to take this person out of the world and into His church, into His body, and to begin a work of laying a foundation of salvation in their lives. The flood and baptism come together just as the rainbow and baptism come together to form a beautiful picture of God acting on our behalf. 
He acts to take away our sin. He takes away the sin that would destroy us and that would kill us, that we might stand before Him in Christ Jesus Himself. We stand before God in Christ Jesus. And baptism mysteriously saves us by bringing us to God to receive a new conscience, to receive a good conscience, to receive renewal that God has promised to us, to know that God is at work through those mysterious waters of baptism to call us forth to himself. And all of this connects over to our gospel as we hear about Jesus' baptism and we hear why baptism can do something to us. It's because Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist. And Jesus himself received the Spirit upon himself. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus came before his temptation because it was the moment of his affirmation before the people, of him being the Messiah and being called into the ministry before the people being called into ministry by the Father, but He has given the foundational truth that He Himself is the beloved Son and that the Father is well pleased with Him. Receiving the Spirit, and the Spirit immediately drives Him into the wilderness. He forces Him to go out into the wilderness. This is no happy-go-lucky word. Not merely was He led, but the Spirit pushed Him to go into the wilderness where he would fast for 40 days and be tempted by Satan for 40 days and pray for 40 days. There, Jesus endured all of temptation, all of the ways of Satan being poured upon him, trying to draw his eyes from the Father, to draw him into sin, and yet he resisted it those 40 days. And he resisted those three great temptations that we hear about in the other two synoptic Gospels in Matthew and Luke. We hear about him resisting turning bread creating bread from stones. We hear of him resisting the temptation to bow down and worship Satan to receive the kingdoms of the world. We hear about his resisting of temptation to leap from the pinnacle of the temple in order to demonstrate his messiahship that the angels would come and lift him up and preserve his life. He resists all of that. Temptations that we don't necessarily have in those forms. But nonetheless, Those are the great temptations that Jesus endured on our behalf because they represent all the temptations that we can endure, all the temptations that we undergo continually every day of our lives. And we don't just say Jesus resisted temptation because He's God Himself in the flesh. God became man because God in His own nature cannot be tempted. He cannot be tried. He cannot be tested by sin and evil. Because he is perfectly holy. And sin and evil is the absence of his holiness in many ways. And so God became a true human being and in becoming a true human being, he is truly a man in all ways like us save for sin. And so he can be tempted according to his human nature that the person of the Son of God is tempted by Satan truly. He is tested and tried in the wilderness Enduring temptations that we can't even imagine. And yet we can because Hebrews reminds us that He is tempted in every way that we are. He endures temptation on our behalf. First John gives us a picture of that when it speaks of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
And those three ideas of all of temptation and all of sin being wrapped together in those three categories is what Jesus deals with there. It's what Adam and Eve dealt with in their fall. And Jesus dealt with and did not fall. The lust of the flesh being that the tree was good for food to Adam and Eve. And Jesus needed bread to eat after fasting for so long, but He resists turning those stones into bread. He resists Satan's temptation and turns it away with a word of Scripture. The lust of the eyes. For Adam and Eve, they looked upon that tree and it was pleasant to the eyes. And Jesus looked over the kingdoms of the world and they were pleasant to see and they were desirous to have because that's what He came to do. He came to win those kingdoms. But Satan offered it to Him through worship of Satan, not through worship of Yahweh and enduring the will of God. Satan offered an easy way and Jesus resisted that offer, though He desired those kingdoms just as He desired bread after fasting for so long. He resisted worshiping Satan and resisted the lust of the eyes and the pride of life that the tree was desirable to make one wise there in the garden. And Jesus is tempted to throw Himself from the temple to prove not just to Himself but to the whole world that He is the Messiah to do a grand and glorious act that would draw all eyes to Himself. But He resists that because that is not how He is to display His power and all of these He deals with with the words of Scripture. Baptized to go into the wilderness and be tempted. Resisting because the Spirit is with Him. And pushing back against temptations with the Word of God. God is at work in Jesus, yes. But God is especially at work in Jesus because He is there for us. As St. Peter said, He suffered once for sin. He suffered for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. And this is part of His sufferings to endure temptation on our behalf. And that mysteriously God is at work in Him through baptism, pouring the Holy Spirit upon Him, confirming to the Son and before the people that He is well-beloved, that He is doing what He has been called to do, and driving Him into the wilderness with that reality, with that truth that He is the well-beloved Son. He is prepared to do battle in the wilderness against Satan, to do battle against temptation, and to resist and to drive the devil away for a time. And so baptism comes down to us as well, as a foundation place for us in resisting temptation. As Martin Luther said, when he is tempted, he always starts out with, I am baptized. I belong to Jesus Christ. I am one of His children. I'm one of the Father's children, a brother and co-heir of Jesus. That's what baptism brings to us. It brings to us that salvation. It brings to us the promise that God will act in us and draws us to faith and gives us the faith that we need for it has the Word of God attached to that water, the promise of God to renew us, to bring us to Himself, and draws us to faith. And we live in that faith by remembering our baptisms. And we undergird our faith more and more with the Word of God itself, with Scripture, and dwelling, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit is given in baptism, we are built up by the Holy Spirit also with the Word. That as Jesus turned away Satan's temptations with the Word, it seemed so easy for Him to do. 
But we don't understand everything going on in the psyche of Jesus at that moment. We tend to think temptation should be easy to resist, but it's not. Temptation overtakes every one of us throughout our days. We all fall from temptation completely into sin at one point or another every day. But we can turn and confess that sin. And we can begin building resistance against that sin. For when the temptation comes again, we can build up with the word. We can build up through prayer. We can build up through turning to Jesus more and more. To calling out for him to fill us with his spirit. And to draw us ever nearer to himself. Because Jesus himself was suffered, had suffered when tempted. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered in his temptations, and we will suffer in our temptations as well. But because Jesus has suffered when tempted, he can help us as we draw near in our baptisms, in the word, in prayer, and even in fasting, part of our season of Lent. Seeing temptations overtaking us and drawing away from them and fasting, whether from food or drink or from some other aspect of our lives that is distracting us from the Lord. And turning those moments when we would be enjoying those things into moments of prayer and scripture reading to draw near to the Lord more fully, to confess our sins a little more fully, to confess that the temptation is too strong for us to resist. And to draw into Jesus knowing That in baptism he has washed us and placed us within his kingdom. That giving us faith we can draw near by that very spirit that was given to us. And let our faith be increased by that spirit. And be renewed by that spirit. And walk that path through that temptation resisting it. Whatever it may be. And yes, each of us will fall once more to our temptations. And we return back in that same process, remembering baptism, turning in prayer and confession and asking for strength to resist, strength to endure, strength to follow Jesus. And that is the way of our Christian life, dealing with temptation day in and day out, failing in that dealing with it and falling into sin, but yet returning back to know that Jesus has redeemed us and will forgive us as we turn to him as we draw near to Him, as we confess our sins and rest in Him alone. For it is Jesus alone who saves. So may we remember our colic this day. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Let us cry out in our temptations, come quickly to help us. Come quickly to help me, O Lord. And you know the weaknesses of my flesh. You know the weaknesses. You know those places where Satan can tempt me beyond despair. But let me always find you mighty to save, O God, because of what Jesus has done. So continually let us draw near and find Jesus to be that Savior who will build us up. And renew us in the midst of temptation and sin. That we would always keep our eyes focused on Him. Knowing His goodness and mercy. And that that all starts in baptism. For God begins His work in us. To draw us near to Jesus. And to build us up as His people. In the name of the Father. 
and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.